Joining me, this is Chuck Morse, Left Right Radio with Chuck Morse. My guest is Daniel Greenfield. He is a Stillman Journalism Fellow at the Freedom Center. He's a columnist with uh, Front Page Magazine, a New York writer focusing on such matters as radical Islam on the Middle East, on uh, American uh, politics, and on the left in particular. Daniel, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thanks so much for having me on, Chuck. Daniel, I want to ask you about how things have changed with regard to how Israel is portrayed and viewed on American college campuses. And I say this because back in the 70s, for example, here in my own area of UMass Amherst, there was a major fight between the pro-Israel and anti-Israel crowd, and it was all out in the open. They go out, would do flyers, and then the Israel people would do their flyers. Now there is a much more suppressive attitude in that people who are pro-Israel are having to be very circumspect in terms of what they say publicly. Um, I have, as just an anecdote, I know a college student who is here at a local college in Greater Boston who couldn't even speak too loudly about Israel at a Jewish group, at a, at a Hillel, um, and was afraid to play a song about Tel Aviv at a Purim party because it might offend some people. And you've got this radical group called Voices for Peace, made up, made up primarily of Jewish students who are virulently anti-Israel and who are very censorious with regard to anyone who, too, who publicly displays support for Israel. What's going on right now on American college campuses in this regard? So the situation with the pro-Israel um, on campuses is an outgrowth of the larger situation in the campus culture in general, which is that the left is now violently shutting down the center we've come along with in the whole Berkeley free speech movement. Now we have the anti-free speech movement. Obviously, it's not just pro-Israel activists, it's conservatives, and it's even people who are liberals. If you were following the Brett Weinstein saga, at Evergreen, you have people who are certainly on the left. They agree with 90% of their views, but they don't agree with the other 1% or the other 10%. And so they have to be violently shut down or get threatened, they get physically assaulted. Um, they, get, they do everything possible to force them out. Uh, that's one point. When it comes specifically to the pro-Israel areas, so the anti-Israel groups have become much more organized. And the 70s things were much more casual. And now the people who are active in that, like Hatem Bazian, have now built their own infrastructure. They have their own organizations and have a variety of these. You mentioned Jewish voices, that's one group. Uh, there's Students for Justice in Palestine, there's the Muslim Students Association, and there are multiple of these groups, and they're all self-reinforcing. And because of intersectionality, they've built uh, networks of alliances with other identity politics groups, and so they actually become a very formidable force. Um, the other thing that's going on is that uh, the campus culture is now based on victimhood, it's based on safe spaces, which means we're not even going to debate you and not going to have a conversation about it. We're going to violently shut you down because it is your existence endangers our safety, and we're seeing that very much as an active issue. The whole business of um, you know microaggression theory, which was started at Harvard back in the 1980s by a professor named Charles Pierce, is one of the most totalitarian movements that I have ever seen in this country. It's, uh, it's really an informal form of communism. It's tyranny, actually, in that you have people put under a microscope to see if they can find a racist gene or, or something. It's, it's even le you know, more unapologetic than that in that they can just tell someone is racist or someone is whatever the category might be that they want to attack them on just by 
what they think of them. I mean, it's, it, there's no evidence at all. And it is the most vicious kind of interrogation and destruction of people's character, people's life. You know, and this is predominating on college campuses. I don't blame a lot of students who are going to these campuses and whose parents are spending $60,000 a year that they're terrified to stick their neck out and say anything that might not genuflect to a left-wing point of view and in that they can be destroyed and they can have their, their future damaged. They could be drummed out of school. They could hurt their job prospects, their, their ability to get an internship, their reputation. You know, this crowd is, will shun them. It's, it's the most vicious thing that I've seen. What can we, who are freedom-oriented people, whether we're liberal or conservative, I may add, what can we do to stand up to this informal tyranny? Well, it is a very scary time. As you mentioned, there are very real economic and social consequences, especially because now um, companies will just fire people even if they haven't conceivably remotely done anything wrong. Uh, for example, you have the recent case where a former Gawker alum um, went after the daughters of Pamela Geller, who is an activist against uh, the Islamic Jihad, and they had done nothing wrong. They just had their own things going on, but immediately whatever companies were doing business with them dropped them because they are the daughters of somebody who has bad views, and therefore they too must be punished. So this is a very creepy, it's very North Korea, it's very communist China, it's very Soviet Union type of situation. Dealing with that is hard because obviously it requires people having courage, people standing up, people continuing to speak out. That's easier for somebody like me to say than for somebody who is actually um, working at a, say, Google, where you have a dominant leftist infrastructure. When you disagree with it, as James Dilmore did, you simply get fired or on campus where you can be thumbed out, forced out, and just have your name and reputation destroyed. Um, but at the same time, we do need to continue to speak out, and we do need to expose leftist abuses because... Um, trying to pretend that this is a normative situation, that these people are just being reasonable, and that we should take their positions at face value before it does not work. They have to be condemned as a totalitarian movement, uh, because you don't confront a totalitarian movement by assuming that it's acting in good faith. You have to expose it for what it is. You have basically these totalitarians, as you accurately call them, controlling the cultural high ground in this country. They control much of the uh, the media outlets they control the uh, the institutions of learning certainly uh, of entertainment um, and they are you know removing i mean they're destroying first of all they're destroying comedy you can't really make a joke about anything unless you goose step to the left and and they're destroying free and open discourse they've turned colleges from places of, of genuine learning and disagreement to places of uh, propaganda and, and behaviorism. Um, you know, they haven't quite yet gotten to the law schools because by law schools, by nature, have to engage in, in arbitrary discourse. But they've even made inroads there and they've made inroads certainly into our business culture. You know, the top 1% richest Americans are all people generally either on the left or who finance the left as well as uh, the culture of the biggest of corporations in this country. Ironically, they're the same people that scream about corporations. But we have one person, certainly publicly, who at least represents an opposition to this, if not de facto is opposed to it, and that would be President Donald Trump. Now, you know, the attack against him 
is unlike anything I've ever seen. I remember how people despised Bush, you know, especially in his last couple of years. I remember some of the vile and disgusting things coming out of the mouths of liberal children about Bush. But that's nothing compared to what, what Trump is having to contend with. He's having to contend with, and you just wrote an article about this, an organized, you know, conspiracy theory that is promulgated with vicious, with, with, with hysterical alacrity almost on a daily basis by the mainstream press. This whole thing about him colluding with Russia. It's almost like a, a repeat of what Senator McCarthy did, except McCarthy was right. There were, you know, Soviet in, agents operating inside the government and helping Stalin and Hitler, by the way, in the first two years of World War II. That was a real thing. But this time around, it's it's almost like they're mimicking that in a very weak and faded manner by trying to pull straws out and, and, and politicize a situation. And the more they dig into this alleged conspiracy about you know, Trump colluding with Russia, the more they find out that, in fact, the Russians were colluding likely with Hillary Clinton and with Bernie Sanders. So what do you make of this phenomenon? It's unbelievable to me. Well, the standard principle is that the left always accuses you of the things that it's actually guilty of. Uh, it's been accusing the right of McCarthyism forever and a day. Now it's actually shouting about Russia and accusing everybody who in any way questions its conspiracy theories of being a traitor. So this is a cartoonish, exaggerated version of what they thought McCarthyism was, and they're actually doing it in real life. You can tune in on CNN, you can read the Washington Post, and you can see the stuff, the same exact stuff that they were crying about. Um, but it seems like the left is becoming more totalitarian, uh, more anti-democratic with each incarnation. So each Republican president is now being attacked more viciously than the last. Certainly each two-term Republican president um, is being attacked with unprecedented ways. Uh, the attacks on Nixon were in some ways unprecedented. The attacks on Reagan were unprecedented. The attacks on Bush were unprecedented. And each incarnation got worse. And now we're seeing a whole new level where they're actively trying to remove a president. With Bush, they refused to recognize his victory. Uh, they insisted that he had stolen the election, but they weren't actively trying to remove him from office until um, there was a period where they were trying to do that with Scooter Webby, but there was really uh, the fringes of the left. They weren't taking this seriously. You didn't see this kind of effort in the Washington Post and in CNN and the New York Times just advocating it and believing that this would actually happen. Um, here, all the mainstream media and really the mainstream left now actively believe that if they're going to President Trump from office, they're um, talking about it nonstop. You had John Kerry passing the message to Abbas, who heads the PLO terrorist group in Israel, telling him that Trump is not going to be in the White House in the year. This is a very disturbing phenomenon because we've moved from wishful thinking, uh, which was the case with Bush, to an active effort in a coup. And that is a disturbing phenomenon when you merge that uh, with the McCarthyism, then you have um, a powerful faction advocating a conspiracy theory to remove the president of the United States. And, you know, I think what you're describing is accurately a, a coup attempt. I mean, it can only be described as that. And it, they're open about it when they refer to resist, which is an old fashioned communist word. Um, and when they talk about, um, you know, um, literally removing him from office, you know, in the old days, if you opposed a, a president or a, or a congressman or a public official, you you supported a candidate against him, you ran against him, and you beat him on in the system. 
you know, you, you argue based on issues, which they will not do. And it's classic leftism. Rather than actually take a look at the issues that President Trump represents and the movement that he represents, which is clear, they, you know, which they can't win on if they try to debate him. Instead, they just work on completely destroying him and discrediting him and using the most ugly tactics. This whole business that he's got something against, you know, black men and women. I mean, it's it's it, it, it does. I suppose it serves two purposes. It leads to destroying both him and, and those of us who support him. But it also serves to stir up racial tensions, which is certainly a goal of theirs anyway, the, the, the dialectic of conflict in order to weaken the society. They certainly have been exploiting racism um, to weaken society, as you said. In actuality, if you go back to the early 20th century, it was the communists who helped organize the first race riots who got on board with using racism to create these kinds of fifth columns. And it's very telling that this is now mainstream politics with the Democratic Party used to be organizing on the left. Now this kind of thing like Black Lives Matter, Black nationalism, Black separatism is everywhere. It's in popular culture. Um, it's in the Democratic Party's national convention. You can see Obama posing with Farrakhan. You can see um, Keith Ellison, who's the number two at the DNC, who's had a long extended history with Farrakhan. You can see the leaders of the Women's March. And so all this is now becoming quite mainstream. And this is a disturbing phenomenon. Because, again, the left is increasingly radicalizing, and it's radicalizing all the movements that are dependent on it, mainly the Democratic Party, which means the Democratic Party today has now adopted positions that would have been considered extreme far, far left um, 40, 50 years ago. And the process is only going to continue onward. There's no reason to think that it's going to stop here. A lot of people like to think, well, they've reached here. Uh, they've gotten this. They're not going to go any further because that would just be crazy. I mean, maybe this is kind of a little out there. Um, but it's not going to go any further than that. The thing to remember about the left is it has no natural stopping point. Extremists have no natural stopping point. Um, when you have a political movement that's going extreme, and the left has been going extreme for its entire history, when it actually takes over a political movement the way it did with the Democratic Party, it's going to be an unstoppable process. And we have to be aware of that. We have to be prepared to, well, dare I say it, resist it. And I think that they used to be a little bit more secretive about this, I mean, Obama was a classic example of a tabula rasa, a blank slate, came out of nowhere and all of a sudden he's revered as this great leader. You know, everything about him was under, was classified by his own doing. And suddenly he's launched from being a local Chicago politician to the presidency. And um, now it comes out after he served his two terms, they're releasing pictures of him with Farrakhan, which he denied while he was running. And they're, they're boasting about it. I mean, it's sort of out there. So I, I think that, I mean, obviously my hope is that they're overstepping themselves. They've become so bold and so open in their radicalism where they used to couch it in a lot of double talk and sophistic language. Now they're fairly open. As you mentioned, Ellison, the co-chairman of the Democratic National Committee, is affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, how much more radical can they get? And yet, so I wonder, do you think that, do you think that they're, they're becoming more exposed? I mean, the American people are becoming aware of this, because if they are, they're going to reject it. It would certainly be nice to think so, as you have mentioned. They are becoming more open about it. 
But in a way, that's good news because the mask is coming off, but it's also bad news because it means that they're confident that they can take the mask off safely and not have to worry about the consequences. And so far, uh, the consequences have been mixed. On the one hand, you have President Trump winning, you have the window opening for the right, and all sorts of ideas that were formerly unacceptable becoming mainstream. On the other hand, it just shows that society has gotten to the point where they're willing to tolerate every insane leftist idea, and there'll be a certain amount of backlash uh, but they're not necessarily being rolled back. So there was a, once upon a time, there was this kind of mainstream consensus. There was a middle ground. Uh, there was a time when there was a middle America that would prevent any kind of radical extremes from taking hold. Uh, now that consensus has completely come apart. And the left thrives in this situation. If you think about Weimar Germany, this is exactly what they look for. They want to tear apart a society. They want to tear apart the middle class. And they want to create a primal conflict between one extreme and another and be confident that they can dominate that extreme. And if they don't, if the other extreme dominates, then they still win because there's no alternative to them. Because the alternative to them is just another version of them. Once you have two extremes, they end up eventually um, taking on equal form has happened in one where Germany has happened with the Nazis and the communists, which is mirror images of each other. You had the socialists and you had the national socialists. So they want to destroy society. They will rule it if they can, but if they can't, then they'll destroy it. You know, this is exactly right. This is exactly what happened with Weimar Germany. You had people, both Nazis and communists fighting it out on the street and, uh, the government saying, we have to stop the division. We have to stop the conflict which led them, first of all, to confiscate everyone's firearms. But putting that aside, it, it led to a, a movement to, you know, which was the promise of the Nazis, actually, to stop, you know, to, to move the government forward, to stop all this division and all this conflict and to unite everybody and move the country forward. And in stepped Adolf Hitler. I mean, it was elected with the help of Stalin. And, you know, these same people who were fighting these conflicts and not in the uh, Weimar Germany, they get together later on. I mean, they were all basically on the same side. They were all socialists. Um, and it does seem to kind of, I mean, certainly that event in Charlottesville had that kind of look to it, where you have both radicals on the left, you know, the, the Antifa types, and then suddenly the, this white supremacy thing, which I think is a manufactured thing. I mean, why are these people getting so much attention? All of a sudden, you know, they've been on the fringes of society forever, and all of a sudden they're being catapulted out into the public eye. You know, it, it looks a little too suspicious. It's kind of, uh, I mean, my good friend, my, the late Dr. Samuel Blumenfeld, who was the author of many books and who was a guest of mine over the years, he wrote a, a brilliant uh, essay, you know, at length, very well investigated that you can get online, where he shows that uh, – American Nazi Party head George Lincoln Rockwell was a communist. I mean, it was a front. I mean, he literally was, you know, being handled by Moscow. And suddenly you had American media figures in 1960 take him from, from what he had, like two or three guys sitting around in a house and put him up on the front pages of newspapers and say, look, there's an American Nazi Party. I mean, and, and he became a media sensation. Um, as a way to kind of hold up a mirror and say, this is what really conservatives actually are. You know, this is like, a, you know, it, it, it's just what they secretly are. And I think they're doing the same thing now with this so-called white supremacy business. You know, they're creating this really vicious division in the country and they're holding these people up and saying, you see, look, they're really conservatives. They support Trump, don't they? What do you think? 
That's very true. I just want to uh, put up an aside when it comes to George Lincoln Rockwell. So one of the fun facts there is that he was secretly out, well, not so secretly, actually allied with the Nation of Islam. You have Malcolm X there. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, joking around with him. So all these people are basically connected when you look at white Nazis, black Nazis, that basically ultimately have far more in common with each other than they do with normal Americans, and they both have a common agenda. You saw this also in uh, Russia during the revolution, where all these varying groups that seemingly were violently opposed to each other uh, colluded together to overturn society, and of course, then they decide who gets to kill whom. Now, back to the statement you made, the media very much emphasizes this and covers this. So when Richard Spencer, who is the big creator of the alt-right, goes to campus, and there might be 20, 30 people there, um, there are going to be 300 reporters there all eager to cover this, uh, because it allows them to And that's a very bad phenomenon, uh, but this is something, as you mentioned, that the left has been doing forever. They've tried to associate with Goldwater um, with the far right. They've tried to call him a Nazi. They've tried to call every conceivable person on the right a Nazi. This is part of what they do, and so part of that is also bringing out real Nazis. Now, unfortunately, some conservatives do end up falling for this. They end up listening to, to figures who are on the alt-right um, who are basically there as a controlled opposition. They are there as plans. Uh, to be promoted by the left, to be promoted by the media, and when they actually join up with this, the media wins. The media gets to paint this picture of the far right as opposed to us, the decent, moderate people. This is Michelle Obama's whole line. Uh, when they go low, we go high. So the more they can actually um, characterize conservatives as being there, the more they can uh, paint themselves, no matter how radical they are, as mainstream. So the best possible way for them to appear mainstream when they are radical um, is to create radical extremes on the other side, and that's what they've been doing quite effectively. It backfires on them occasionally, but at the same time, it prevents middle America from going, wait, we're going too far here. No, I mean, I think you've, you've put it quite right. I mean, they create this um, fake opposition, and, and then they hold them up and, and say, you know, like, like with, as you say, with Barry Goldwater, I mean, they were following him around and holding up swastikas, while he was on vacation in Europe and taking pictures of them. I mean, Daniel Shore did this, a very leftist reporter at the time. And, and it was this kind of frame up of like, you see, this is what they secretly are. This was the, um, you know, the Frankfurt School of Social Research. That was their agenda with, with tons of books starting in the 1950s, very scholarly sounding, you know, lots of statistics thrown around and fancy language and double talk, which is how they communicate. Uh, making the case that secretly the American middle class, American, you know, average people are secret fascists. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, as you, we began the program, you made reference, and I think rightfully to this, this Freudian concept of projection. This is exactly what this is. You know, whatever it is that they say is what they're doing. You know, it's, it's a case of projection. I mean, my communist uncle would have said this. I know, you know, that, you know, this is, uh, you know, we, we make an accusation. That's because we're doing this and we don't want anyone to see us do it. And, and I think that we need to I think people need to understand this because it's um, what we're up against. It's a very diabolical thing. And it's something that that's going to have real consequences for this country, you know, and for Israel, not to mention, I mean, which I want to ask you about. I mean, Israel is facing a much, you know, the same existential threat that they faced all along. And in a way, it's much worse right now. Um, I worry about the fact that back in the old days, liberals and conservatives were supporters of Israel. 
the Democratic Party was just as much pro-Israel as the Republican Party. Uh, left was pro-Israel, even, even the Communist Party was pro-Israel in the 1960s. But that's changed. And they are seeping into the culture. They're, they're, they're poisoning large portions of, of America, but and it's particularly appalling, they're poisoning a large portion of Jewish America with their hateful ideology and their warped uh, analysis of the state of Israel as somehow you know, cruel or mean or something like that. What do we do? If you go back to, yes, the Communist Party was briefly supportive of Israel when it was part of Stalin's agenda, but if you go back all the way to the original origin of the Bolsheviks, uh, when it was pretty clear on rejecting Zionism, uh, the Soviet Union pretty clearly and consistently rejected Zionism, so did the far left. Um, so they did temporarily support the creation of Israel because it would undermine the UK, would undermine the West, and they intended to take it over. When that failed, uh, they very blatantly turned against Israel. So the far left, for the most part, had been anti-Israel. Uh, there was a brief space um, during the 40s and 50s where they were actually, in the early 60s, where they were actually supportive of Israel, but it was very much a temporary phenomenon, and it was based in part on uh, Israel's government. Certainly, once Israel's government became more conservative, uh, once the Likud party was becoming predominant, then even more moderate liberals began to peel off, and today, when Netanyahu has been serving for quite a while, um, the Democratic Party is very comfortable being anti-Israel. Uh, but this was part of the radicalization of the Democratic Party, as part of the radicalization of liberalism, um, and it's part of the predominance of the left, because why did the left originally reject the idea of Zionism, the idea of a Jewish homeland? They rejected the idea that the Jews were a separate people, the Jews were this kind of aberration. It's the same view that Nazi Germany had in its own way. The Jews were this kind of mutation. They weren't a separate people. They didn't have individual and national rights. And that's what the left still believes. It's uncomfortable about saying it quite so openly. So it talks about colonialism uh, because it's very comfortable talking, framing it in terms of colonialism, in terms of Western imperialism. But mm. in fact, this is the origin. It's an anti-Semitic idea. The anti-Semitic idea is that the Jews are not an individual people, but just a bunch of people who developed a weird religion because of persecution. And once the persecution ended, it was up to them to assimilate into the general society and to work towards socialism in general. Now, the labor um, Zionism, the socialists who played a large role in Israel, there were people who realized that this was not going to work. They were already seeing the writing on the wall, and the Soviet Union would eventually crack down and destroy all individual Jewish expressions of identity. It would persecute, kill, uh, gulag, and destroy and outlaw every form of Jewish individual identity, even those that it originally had under its own thumb. So they understood that, they got out, all the getting was good, and they still, many of them still had quite a lot of nostalgia for the Soviet Union, but they understood that there was no way for there to be a separate Jewish identity within a Soviet, within a communist, within a socialist larger structure. And we're seeing that in Europe, we're seeing that across the world during any socialist system. Uh, socialism by its nature must become anti-Semitic because it rejects the ideas and the religious identity that encompasses being Jewish. So for a while, um, leftist Jews will ally with it, but they end up being gulag once their usefulness is done. And that's the larger situation, really. It's a lot of the leftist Christians would find out that they end up going the same way. Because the left isn't incompatible with religion, it's very threatened by separate identities. Uh, as much as it advances identity politics, it ultimately purges them. So back in the day, the Soviet Union uh, welcomed all these African-Americans to come to the Soviet Union. We have absolutely no racism. That was their model. Of course, the Soviet Union was not only extremely racist, 
It ended up imprisoning and executing very many of these people who had come here. These were African-Americans who had come from the Soviet Union uh, to work there to live in a non-racist society. Now, while guys like Paul Robson actually went around talking about how wonderful the Soviet Union was, um, he knew quite well that African-Americans there were being imprisoned and killed uh, by the Soviets, which tells you really what the racial solidarity there looked like. So ultimately, the left is a collective, a system that's going to exterminate and destroy everything that is not part of the collective. Well, you make a very good point um, in terms of getting into some of the history of, of, of the Marxist adventure. And I, I would point to Marx's infamous and, and viciously anti-Semitic pamphlet on the Jewish question, which was published in 1844 in which he, which was renamed A World Without Jews uh, later on, and which was popular on the left right up to World War II when it became unfashionable. And in it, Marx basically says that there was the Jews who were responsible for, you know, what he called self-interest and um, huckstering, which is a word for trade, you know, free trade in goods and services, and that they were in the, the inventors of money. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a political anti-Semitism and that the way to get rid of these institutions was to get rid of Judaism. Now, we didn't call for a Holocaust, but those books were certainly read by a young communist by the name of Hitler and by, uh, you know, certainly was codified in the in the planks of the Nazi party, which read like any communist plank planks would. And, and the idea was that Judaism as an idea was something that was poisonous because it enhanced the individual, the, you know, the kind of lifting yourself up on the bootstraps, somebody who believed in God and not the state, someone who was an independent thinker, who was outside the box, who didn't conform to the societal control that they lived in. You know, they, they maintained a separation. And in order to achieve their collectivist dream, they had to get rid of this. And, um, he also blamed Judaism for inspiring the development of Christianity and of America, which is, yeah, I mean, you can make that case. But, you know, the, the point is that, that they wanted to annihilate this tendency. And there were a lot of Jews who bought onto this because it promised to end anti-Semitism by ending Judaism, by ending all religion, by creating a collective one world beehive that where everybody's de facto equal. The other point that I would I, I pick up from your, your comments is the situational nature of leftism, they'll, they'll embrace Israel, they'll embrace America if it's, if it's situationally appropriate to advance their agenda, which is total power. Um, one example that I'll give is that, um, it, you know, in World War II, in the first two years of World War II, the American Communist Party and their left-wing, um, you know, fellow traveling groups and fronts they were very anti-war because they were supporting Hitler. They didn't want the United States to get into the war. And they were attacking Franklin Roosevelt as being a controlled by, you know, the capitalists and, uh, you know, and, and they were slowing down war production. I mean, they literally were, were having political strikes to stop war production and keep America out of the war. But then when Hitler double-crossed his socialist ally, Stalin, in June of 1941, two years into the war, uh, with Operation Barbarossa, they suddenly took a 180-degree turn, literally in a day, and suddenly became super pro-war, super patriotic. They wrapped themselves in the flag. We have to, you know, invade. You know, we have to fight, and they they put up arms. And then, as the war was ending, and it was quite obvious that Hitler was going to be defeated, 
They then took another 180 degree turn with the Duclos letter and again became anti-American, peace party, we, we want peace. So when you hear the left talk about things like peace, you have to realize that it's not a fundamental belief in peace like you and I might have. You know, they're not pacifists, um, which is a political position that I may not agree with, but I respect it. They are for peace because it serves the purpose of advancing their their agenda. I mean, they wanted peace because they wanted to help Hitler in 1940, 1941. So these same situational tactics apply. Now, most people who consider themselves left-wing or liberal, I don't think they're conscious of this. I think they're unwitting. I would call them unconscious, somewhat, you know, what, what Lenin himself would have called useful idiots. But when you take a look at the more conscious elements, they know what this is. They know what they're doing. They're advancing their agenda, and they're willing to rip the society apart to do it, or to do it by any means necessary. What do you think? That's very true of the political great examples. Um, the left has no general principles that it firmly applies by. That's uh, unquestionable. So it will pretend to subscribe to certain principles to advance its agenda. That's, for example, another great example is when the co-founder of the ACLU um, wrote that, yes, we in America, we advocate for free speech and for civil rights because that's the way to advance the class struggle. When the class struggle has actually been won, when its victory has been realized the way that it is in the Soviet Union, uh, then we're for maintaining a work proletariat, a workers' dictatorship by any means necessary. I'm loosely paraphrasing, but that was a general idea. So this right. is the general principle. The ACU will only fight for freedom of speech because it serves its agenda. It doesn't believe in freedom of speech. Uh, they will hold anti-war rallies, and then they will switch to war rallies the next. And the phenomenon you mentioned is really one of the more absurd moments when the left completely exposed its falsehood, its falsity, and all were immortalized that in 1984, we have always been at war with East Asia um, when they switch on a dime whenever the party tells them. Uh, because they have no moral principles of their own, they just believe in the struggle, and that's epitomizes the left. They believe in the struggle, and they believe there's a utopia at the end of that struggle, but they don't have any principles along the way, so the uh, ends always justify the means, and the means can be anything. We can murder millions of people because the end is utopia. And this is very much what the left is. It's why it's so dangerous. It's why any totalitarian system is so dangerous, uh, because a free society believes in compromises, it believes in a kind of a middle ground, it believes in imperfect solutions. Thus, we have democracy, which is the worst of all systems except for all the others. Uh, we believe that there is an imperfect world. We believe that, yes, the market will decide things, the market decides things imperfectly, but it's better than just having 40 guys from Harvard or 40 guys from the Union decide how everything should be run. And the law believes we can achieve a perfect society. We just have to repress and kill enough people along the way in order to do that. Now, the identification of capitalism with the Jews, which you mentioned earlier, um, that was certainly something that Marx put out there, despite his Jewish ancestry. And it was being put out there by Fourier. It was being put out there by all the early socialists um, who actually mobilized popular support by relying on anti-Semitism. So they would go to the merchants, they would go to the um, peasants, and they would tell them, well, you're having all these problems. Um, because of the Jews. So identify capitalism with the Jews, and you can link anti-Semitism uh, with anti-capitalism, which is, again, what the Nazis did. The Nazis were not innovating something new. Uh, they were picking up the old original socialism that had somewhat been neglected, but again, even uh, the communists during the various uh, fights of the control of the Russia very much relied on anti-Semitism. Um, they cheered pogroms as the awakening of the peasantry. So that's always been there. 
And the idea is that if you can link capitalism to anti-Semitism, you can delegitimize capitalism, you can delegitimize individualism, as you mentioned, and you can delegitimize free enterprise. You can say that it's something that was a creation of the Jews. And this is the way at the root of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is not just about hating Jews, it's about using the hatred of Jews to go after anything you can associate with the Jews. Thus, uh, Jews are successful when it comes to business. So capitalism is therefore evil because we can connect it to the Jews. Um, science is evil. Uh, democracy is evil. One thing or another is evil. Christianity is evil because it springs from the Jews. Thus, uh, anti-Semitism because it becomes a kind of Rosetta Stone for everybody who wants to reduce society to barbarism, to collectivism, to destroy individual freedom, and to wipe out any kind of moral code. Well, well, at the bottom of it, of course, is the primary conspiracy theory of the left and of Marxism, uh, which is the conspiracy theory of exploitation, that somehow people who have are secretly involved in ripping off people who have not, that they didn't achieve anything on their own, they didn't earn anything legitimately because of who they are, but it's that they did it by taking it away from someone else. And, you know, this, you know, if you listen to the language of how Hitler talked about the Jews as having somehow, you know, taken away property and taken away freedom from the German people, and you replace the word Jew with the word corporation, the word millionaire, billionaire, it sounds like it could be an American leftist like Elizabeth Warren talking. It's the same conspiracy theory, this, this politics of resentment, the idea that someone else who is perceived as successful, they're not successful because of who they are or what they accomplished. They're successful because they somehow ripped you off. They somehow took something away from you. I mean, it gets into an, an area that we, we can't go to because it's, we, we're running out of time, which is the nature of, of, of capital and money and that it's an abstract value. It's not a, a commodity. But but they, they, they work this idea as a way of basically setting the stage for increasing their own power as they prompt, they appeal to the darkest side of our nature, the, the side of us that's greedy and envious. No, the guy down the street has more money than you. We're going to take it away from him. You know, we'll give a little bit of it to you. And And, and they've always exploited the darker side of people's nature all the way back. I mean, I suppose, you know, it's it's like Whitaker Chambers said in his uh, introduction to his biography, Witness. It's the world's second oldest religion. It was the religion of Adam and you know, Adam and Eve, when the serpent promised Eve, "You can know, be all knowing. You can have everything. You can basically overthrow God in heaven if you partake of the forbidden fruit." You know, it's that same promise that the left offers. Uh, you know, average people. You know, we can have this enormous power, we can change the human nature, uh, we can create this new paradigm. Of course, the new paradigm is something that is so evil that we can't even imagine what it would be. But what they're basically talking about is a one world ant colony. Anyway. Exactly. What the left offers is the promise of a material religion, one that actually makes sense of all the things on earth. We don't have to deal with God, we don't have to think in terms of spiritual or moral matters. What we have to think about is in terms of production. It's the origin of the factory, um, the warming, for example, that obsession with 
cycling, with controlling what you eat, where you buy, and how you do things. Essence of materialism. Again, this was a philosophical topic, and understand we don't have that much time for it. Uh, but mm -hmm. what does is create material religions, and it resolves that by turning the collective into the Godhead. So your God is the collective society. The human unity will be the thing that you worship, and there'll be a cult of personality around various leaders who actually take us there. So it's fundamentally hostile to religion. It's also fundamentally hostile to the individual because it's a religion of the collective. It's a religion of the material. So it has to be anti-capitalist because if you can actually work and improve your own lot, then who needs this collective? Who needs a bunch of experts out there telling you exactly how to live? If individual liberty, the amazing revolution of the American Revolution of the Declaration of Independence of the Constitution can actually make it possible for individuals to live happy, prosperous lives, then there's no need for their material religion. So they have to obsessively destroy America because America is the best and finest expression of that individual, of that individual meritocracy. If you yeah. can improve through your own efforts, if you can work harder, if you can think, if you can reason, then you don't need the conspiracy theories. You don't need to blame the other guy. If you see this, for example, throughout the Middle East, where everything is a conspiracy theory, everything is, well, who, who's behind that? Why don't we have that? Why are we, why are we backward? Why don't we have the caliphate anymore? It was the Jews, it was the Freemasons, it was the CIA. It's never them. It's never our thing. It's never my personal responsibility. And you see this with leftists and post Remember how Hillary was unable to admit that she had done anything wrong. She would try to find these very circuitous ways to deny that it wasn't just about evading the political damage. She would have taken less political damage if she just came out and said, I had a misjudgment, I'm sorry, let's move on now, which um, is the smart thing for a politician to do. Instead, she would have these all these complicated evasions. Why did she need these evasions? Because she was incapable of taking responsibility, because she was living in the realm of conspiracy theories. There was Russia. It was this and that. We're all living in Hillary Clinton's conspiracy theory brain. We're now all living in this Russia conspiracy where the whole purpose is to explain that, no, these guys were never responsible for anything. It was never their fault. It wasn't Hillary Clinton's fault. It wasn't the fault of her campaign. It wasn't the fault of the Democrats. It wasn't the fault of Democrat voters. It was the fault of the Russians, the Republicans, the Spanish mm -hmm. conspiracy that now includes Chabad and now includes every single uh, person on earth who isn't a left-wing Democrat. But it's never our fault. And that's what you do when you don't reason, when you don't work hard, when you don't believe in meritocracy, then you take refuge in conspiracy theories. Well, I think in the case of the Clintons, they were used to being protected. They knew that they live in an almost in an alternative universe because as long as they genuflect to the left, they could get away with everything short of murder. Some people even say that, but putting that aside, I mean they 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 steal and you know they rob and steal their way for decades, going all the way back to Arkansas. But they were able to do it because they're on the left. They're tools of the left, so they could get away with this kind of stuff. And they got used to that. And I think it was a shock to them when they actually lost an election, uh, a shock to the entire system. So they've come up with this cockamamie conspiracy theory, which is unprecedented in American politics to the degree that it's openly promoted by the mainstream media. Usually these kinds of nutty conspiracy theories are knocked down by the mainstream media, but the mainstream media is in on it. I don't know if they're in on it consciously in that they know this is a crock of you know what. Or if they just are swept up in it and, and they have to do it, and uh, it's what their base wants to hear. You know, they can't say anything good about President Trump or they're going to get, um, you know, attacked. I, I mean, I just this is an anecdote, but I was listening. I listened to a lot of talk radio and Michael Smirconish, he's a radio host, big radio host in Philadelphia, a very good radio host. I would describe him as slightly left of center, but he tends to 
be fair. He tends to look at issues relatively fairly. He said something positive about President Trump. He said, oh, he did something that I think was a good thing. And the amount of hate mail that he got and, and the threats he got and personal threats and, and people, they were still going to boycott his advertisers, people he'd known for, for decades, that he had to back down. And he had to come on and say, hey, you know, I'm sorry I, I said this. I can't do this. And so I think that there is that. There is a threat that people have. They know they need to appeal to a base that is all wrapped up in this, this frenzy of, of hatred and that they're just boiling in that cauldron. Or they just are true believers. I don't know. We can't know because we can't know what the heck is going on in their minds. But anyway, Daniel, we've reached toward the end of the program. So I'd like you to let my listeners know where they can read your articles or your books and where they can get more information about you. Well, I'm sure you should follow at the David Greenings Freedom Center. So you can, they can always go to frontpagemag.com or just Google Daniel Greenfield. Um, it would be either me or a child psychiatrist in Massachusetts. So... I'm not the child psychiatrist in Massachusetts, so he's okay. Excellent. Daniel, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a great talk. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. And I shall return at uh, tomorrow at, at 12 